Dining with Cannibals. Written and performed by Michael J. Grady. Chapter 2. The Quantum Suicide Letters. Like most 20-year-old men, Tom, my wife's boyfriend, was as sharp as a throw pillow. As whip-smart as Heather was, I couldn't make out what she saw in him. As I lay on my living room couch after they wished me a good night, I sifted through variations of this thought. Tom was immature, shy, and nonverbal. I couldn't fathom what they had in common. Until a few minutes after they closed the bedroom door, what they had in common... They had four times that night. I had never heard a woman howl like that before. And I'd been married to Heather for 12 years. If a machine had made that sound, someone would have called the fire department and the building would have been evacuated. When the hurly-burly finally came to an end, I passed out. It was all I could take. Heather and I were having a rough patch. I had disappeared over a year prior without a word and returned earlier that day with an absurd and transparent lie to explain myself. Seeing how disappointed she was by the total implausibility of this lie, I shuddered at how she might have responded, had I told her the truth. I slept for an hour or two and woke up to the sound of Heather and Tom arguing. You can't stay here anymore, said my wife. It's too complicated. Does that mean it's over? asked Tom. Yes, she said coldly. Is it about him? Of course. I have to make a choice. I sat up on the couch, biting the end of the blanket. And you're choosing him? I held my breath as she paused. It hasn't been right between us for some time, she said. I needed comfort. The bedroom door swung open. Her boyfriend exited the bedroom, and the scene moved to the living room. You were just using me, he said, standing in the spotlight of the open door. Maybe you're right, said Heather. But I still love him. My heart leaped. But I still love you, he said. My wife looked at him with pity. I looked at him with pity. It's over, she said. But Tom still couldn't figure out what my wife was saying. You want me to go? I think it would be best, she said. He stood by the door, frozen, and my wife seemed to be all out of words. So I walked up to him and I said, I know it's hard, but all I could think of was a cliche. I searched my mind for something helpful. But I said, you have to consider her happiness. When had I become no old coward? Tom looked at me as if I was speaking another language. And yours, I added. You're a good-looking man with your whole life ahead of you. And obviously you know how to treat a woman. I had just told him everything I hated about him, but I hoped it would help. Tom nodded vacantly and walked out the door. I felt badly for him for a moment, and then I looked at my wife and smiled. She smiled back at me with some sadness and walked into the bedroom. And I followed. What are you doing? She asked. Oh, I said disappointed. I thought, no, she replied. But you just told your boyfriend you love me. He's my ex-boyfriend, she said. Yes, I said beaming. And I just told him that I'm going back to my old boyfriend. Right, I said. Heather stared at me with pressed lips. You mean I'm not your old boyfriend? No, she said. You're my husband. Oh. Matt, when you left, my life changed and... And you had to go on. To, uh find comfort. It was... I don't know how to find the word. It, it was, uh... I know. 
Wonderful, she said. Wonderful, I repeated. It was difficult for me at first, she said. And then, well, the world opened up to me in ways I can't describe. And, well, you had to be there, she said. I'm glad I wasn't. Me too, she said. And I died as she paused. You see, I discovered new things about myself. Things I didn't know I could feel. Desires I didn't know were there. I can't go back now. And I won't. What about us, I asked. I don't know, she said. I need time. I sat down for a moment. I started to feel a bubble of helpless emotions coming to the surface. And I gently held it back. The doorbell rang. And when I took a step toward the door, Heather grabbed my arm. She held her hand up and I hushed. After a few cautious breaths, the doorbell rang again. And then whoever it was started knocking and banging impatiently. Heather called out, Just a minute! It's him, she whispered excitedly as she ushered me away from the door. Who? I asked. Your ex-boyfriend? No, he still has a key. Heather stopped by a mirror and gave herself a quick preening. Your old boyfriend, I guessed? He's out of town with his wife. Who? Her answer was muffled by a third series of knocks. I started again toward the door and Heather intercepted me. Who? I repeated. My lover, she whispered. Your lover? I shouted. Heather slapped her hand over my mouth and shushed me voicelessly. Who are you talking to? Clamored the voice from the other side of the door. I'm on the phone, Jimmy, she said. I'll be just a minute. Heather ushered me toward the back door and then took me by the arm and said, You've got to go right now. But Jimmy's possessive and fiercely territorial. But I'm your husband, I said. Yeah, he wouldn't like that, said Heather. He doesn't know. He had a hard enough time with my boyfriend. I see. I don't want you to be hurt. A little late for that, I said. I'm not talking about your feelings, Matt. He'll kill you. You're my wife, I said. You think I'd run away rather than make a stand for you? She eyed me with delight for the first time since I arrived. That's kind of hot, she said. You don't know every side of me either, Heather. Apparently not. You know there's a beast in me. Really? Yes. He's a cage fighter. I'll hide in the closet. Then I tiptoed into the closet and hid under the hems of my wife's dresses. I heard the door open. What took you so long? Said my wife's lover. Come on, Jimmy. Aren't I worth waiting for? She asked. Who are you talking to? He demanded. No one you should worry about. It was your boyfriend, wasn't it? You mean my ex-boyfriend? Really? Mm-hmm. Let's go to bed, she said. Why the rush? All that pounding on the door got me going. I don't want to wait. You don't want to wait? Said my wife's lover. I could tell from his voice that he was right outside the closet door. Well, he said. Neither do I. Let's skip the foreplay. What's that, she said. They must have flown from the foyer to the bedroom and landed in missionary. Notes of passion and two different octaves started to funnel across the living room to the closet I was hiding in. Notes I had never heard her make. Not even with her ex-boyfriend. I crawled out of my hiding place and quietly opened the back door. Under the sounds of my wife and her lover, I heard the low moan of her ex-boyfriend, Tom. I'd know it anywhere. He was crying on the swing set of my neighbor's yard. I tried to sneak past him, but he caught me while he was wiping his eyes. What happened? He asked. I have no idea, I said. I thought we had something, you know. I understand, I said. It's all happened so fast. I'm feeling dizzy myself. I suppose you and I are... I'm not in the mood to talk, said my wife's ex. It's all too fresh. You wouldn't understand. Okay, I said, standing up. I really thought we had something. I know.
After my wife had demoted me twice in the same night, I took consolation in the certainty that I had seen the worst of it. I went to my old boss, Harry, who was still upset with me for leaving without notice. I told him that I had been in a coma. I suppose I can accept that, said Harry. But your old desk is taken. Of course, I said. We missed you, said Harry. But this college kid came along and did the job better than I'd ever seen it done. He's a bit immature and not that smart, but he's got some real talent. Maybe I could hire you as his assistant. That would be great, I said. When we arrived at my desk, there was a man on his hands and knees gathering his possessions into a small box. I recognized him when he stood up. Hello, Tom, I said. Who are you, asked Tom. It's your new assistant, said Harry. He's not my assistant, said Tom. Well, we can get you another one, said Harry. No thanks, said Tom, handing Harry an envelope. It's my resignation. But we need you here, said Harry. What would we do without you? I can't work for you anymore, said Tom. Why? You know why. Tom walked away. But where will you go? called Harry. I'm moving in with my mother. Well, say hello to her for me. Harry watched Tom leave. What a shame, he said mournfully. I guess the job is open. What happened, I asked. Well, he and I were seeing the same woman. You mean my wife, I said. Oh, he said. Right. I got a job working as a mopman at King Smut's tomb, cleaning video booths in an antiquated shop selling adult paraphernalia DVDs and books. Is exactly what you'd imagine. The worst part of it was walking home in the wet shoes. I moved into the only apartment I could afford, an illegal basement unit located below a cheese factory. I didn't want to be alone with my thoughts, so I called my friend Richard. Pouring my heart out to a friend seemed like a good idea. Truthfully, Richard wasn't the first person I called. But he was the first person to answer, and when he answered it was before the second ring. Matt. Jeez. How are you? I've been better. I heard. I, look, I've been meaning to call. I was sorry to hear that you and Heather had separated. Yeah. I really loved the two of you as a couple. Yeah. Me too. Are you okay? I don't know. I understand. Uh, Deborah and I, uh... Oh, no. Y yeah. Wow. When? Right after you left. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay, because I can get through this, Matt. And you can, too. Thanks. You want to know the secret? Please. Move on. That's the secret? The secret is that that's all you have to do. I don't know if I can. Of course you can. Matt? What? You've got to be ready to let go. I don't know, Dick. Heather isn't standing around, he said. So why should you? The truth of it hit me in the chest. You're right. You just have to say to yourself, I'm letting go. Do it. Okay. I'm waiting. Okay, I'm letting go. Good. How does that feel? Terrible. Then say it again. I'm letting go. Wasn't that easier? I don't know. Say it again. I'm letting go. I'm moving on. Say it. I'm moving on. There is more in this life for me. There's more in this life for me. Good. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah. Do you believe it? I didn't. I guess, I said. Sure. I'm proud of you, Matt. Thanks. One of these days I'm going to take you out and show you that there are some great women out there. Maybe. Don't wait too long. Okay. Good. So you're uh, moving forward. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Say, do you know 
what would be good for you and me? How about, how about I ask Heather out, huh? What do you think, huh? Would that be okay? Hello? For the first week or two, my wife or a duly appointed representative came by with boxes. In much the same way that Heather had been avoiding me, I avoided whatever was inside of them, likely for the same reason. Whether Schrodinger's cat or Gwyneth Paltrow's head, ignorance is bliss. But the days were too long, and my world had become too small to put it off. Tucked into the top of one of the boxes, I found a note from Heather. I can't quote it. But it was the truth in all of its cruelty, including three sentences that were so sharp and loaded with callous and sadistic insight, they left me completely undone. I was no longer under any delusion that I was a man. And I couldn't think of anything to look forward to. Among the treasures I unpacked were my physics textbook, a bottle of bourbon that neither of us liked, and a single-action army forty-five caliber revolver that belonged to my late father. I opened the decorative case containing this deadly artifact, and I thought about him and the unorthodox relationship that he had had with my mother. My mother and my father met only once, for about five minutes, after which they shook hands and agreed to never see one another again. Each of them confessed to me that they would have preferred to have left sooner, but neither of them wished to be impolite. According to my mother, my conception was a complete accident, a clerical error made by a receptionist at a gynecologist's office during her first day of training. Unless they are very lucky, everyone working in the medical field will make at least one irreparable mistake, one mistake with life-threatening or life-ruining consequences. That receptionist's mistake was me. During the settlement hearing, when this receptionist testified, she was asked what she said to her supervisor after she realized that a mistake had been made. Her answer was, Whoops. The resulting pregnancy put my then 19-year-old would-be mother, Isabel Jillings, in an awkward position. Since Isabel was raised as a born-again Christian, she would not consider an abortion. She could not expect the support of her church either. Its fundamentalist leaders rejected the letter her gynecologist had written them because they regarded gynecology as a form of divination, and she was turned out because they would not entertain the notion that she had conceived a child without committing the sin of fornication. Isabel used the settlement she received from her gynecologist to buy a small cottage in northern Maine, on a five-acre plot of land that she called God's Little Acre, where she brought me up by herself while working as a caregiver at night and picking up a few shifts a week as a hairdresser. Being expelled from her church and moving far away to raise me on her own caused Isabel to cling to God. She had seen how woefully inadequate humanity was. She had been stung by the faithlessness of friends and family so she was perfectly happy to leave the world behind. For her, leaving the world meant zealously reading the Bible, isolating herself from the evils of society, and enthusiastically preparing for the end of the world. For a single mom working two jobs, the end of the world seemed like her best shot at a day off. Isabel reveled in headlines featuring wars and rumors of wars, floods, hurricanes, famines, nuclear proliferation, the Cold War, and various predictions of the end times. She and I held personal vigils every time a preacher in some obscure denomination declared the Earth's expiration date. We lit candles and I kneeled next to her, terrified as she zealously prayed out loud that God would take her and me up to heaven to be with his angels 
and rain burning sulfur down on the godless fornicators, the sodomites, the perjurers, the gluttons, the usurers, the collections agents, the paleontologists, the rude customers, the false friends, and the gynecologist's offices in this exhausting and good-for-nothing world. Please, Lord, roll up the earth and the firmament and the moon and the stars, crinkle it all up into a great big ball, douse it with gasoline, and use it to start a bonfire in hell. Burn it up, burn it all up, Lord, for the love of St. Peter's pajamas. Barring that, she looks forward to my graduating high school, I imagine, so I could move out. Isabel's hard work and religious zeal, along with a heavy smoking habit, gave her a rugged, lived-in appearance. Isabel took up smoking after leaving her church in East Texas, which condemned it, and joining her church in northern Maine, which required it. By the time she was 30 years old, just in time for my preteen years, Isabel had cultivated the stone-faced, judgmental stare of a woman three times her age. It was enough to make a sailor on shore leave go flaccid and repent every fantasy he had nurtured in his bunk during all of those lonely months at sea. Mom and I were poor. We shopped at thrift stores and ate off-brand macaroni and cheese made with evaporated milk. Back then, I thought my favorite type of cheese was government. Other kids had video games. Who could afford them? Other kids had Transformers. Are we made of money? Cable, Nikes, home computers. Our name isn't Rockefeller. So when it came to fathers, I didn't bother to ask. We were lucky to have a TV. Though she never said it outright, I suspect that at least part of my mother held out hope that her son would grow up to be a messiah. Maybe if I was Jesus, it would all have been worth it. She wasn't a single mother throwing her life away, but a blessed mother in the making. A brave woman who fled the unbelief of her people in West Texas to the unknown frontiers of northern Maine. To raise the savior of mankind might have felt like she was breaking even. But Isabel's hopes were pulverized when she came home early from a church meeting one night and caught her anointed one, committing an act that was in implicit violation of Levitical law. This occurred during a rerun of Wonder Woman in the middle of a scene where she was interrogating a Nazi. There was little room in my mother's cosmology for her son to be a normal, sinful person. You were either Jesus or a pedophile, and the shame of my disgraceful humanity weighed heavy upon her. She didn't like mankind, and for a while, she didn't seem to like me. Go ahead and listen to your rock and roll, fornicate and sacrifice to Baal for all I care. It didn't matter. She had already failed. The shame, the terrible, dismal shame. Why do I even bother? Her downcast glance seemed to say. We were all fucked now. After my fall from grace, my mother opened herself up to cursing and drinking. She was no lush, but she was much better at drinking. She had come to profanity too late to understand the subtleties, and before mouthing the most vulgar word in a phrase, she couldn't help but stammer. Her earliest experiments were almost inaudible. And even after she learned to raise her voice while she was cursing, she overcompensated by shouting the clean words twice as loud. It's difficult to know whether it was from uncertainty or shame, but she never got rid of it. She started with phrases like, Little, Shit, and Darn, Fuck. Years before hip-hop artists made it fashionable, my mother took to calling me a bitch when she was annoyed with me, and a son of a bitch when she was angry with me, though she ignored the irony. Her endearing fits of profanity were a double-edged sword, 
Well, it was hard not to get angry with my mother while she was insulting me. It was twice as hard to keep myself from unintentionally antagonizing her with my laughter. That's not funny, man. Wipe that smile off your face. I'm being very serious now. Now, sh show some respect, you little shit ass. I'm not kidding you now, you tit breath. I could understand why the woman who changed my diapers would call me a shit ass. But tit breath seemed uncalled for, especially since she never breastfed me. My tendency to laugh at my mother's cussing also created an obstacle when trying to offer her a sympathetic ear after a frustrating day at one of her jobs. Her attempts at swearing often led to both of us cracking up. He was such a... Fuck. Bag. Stop laughing, Matt. Please, Mom. Go on. I would say, trying to compose myself. I'm terrible, she would say, laughing. But I'm still mad. Let it out, I would say. He, he was such a chicken. Twa. <laughs> it's okay, Mom. Just try not to be so cute. Cunt house. Adorable. Douche brain. <laughs> Dick hole. <laughs> Tar breath. I started to laugh again, and she started to swear earnestly through her laughter. Monkey poop. <laughs> Weasel shit. Cock nugget. <laughs> Pecker breath. Penis jockey. Hey, penis jockey. Penis jockey isn't bad, I said. Well, I tried, she said. No, I, I meant it was good. I definitely would not want to be called a penis jockey. You may regret that, said my mother. We both did. A week later, my mother called me a penis jockey. And I tried very hard to look insulted, but neither of us could stop laughing. My mother lost her virginity when I was 14. It was with Morty Cook, a laconic man in his early 50s who she met during her weekly Bible study. One minute, my mother and Morty were in the living room memorizing passages from Romans and Galatians on the evils of the flesh, and the next they were both in her bedroom with the door closed. It was the first time I had ever heard the latch on my mother's door click, and it was kind of terrifying but not as chilling as the sounds I would hear a few minutes later. The squeaking of my mother's mattress, along with their mutual sobbing and begging Jesus for forgiveness, was one of the most disturbing sound collages I've ever heard. Through the paper-thin walls of my mother's cottage at God's Little Acre, I heard their penitent pillow talk. Dear Lord, said Morty, have pity on this poor sinner. Amen, said my mother. Never again, Lord, he said. I will walk the narrow path to your salvation. Yes, Lord. And I will keep my mind and body pure. Purer than ivory soap, Lord. It's been so long and hard, Lord. So long. And so very hard. We come before thee naked. So naked. Please do not turn your face from us. Allow us to enter your tabernacle and minister to your Holy of Holies. Please, Lord. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So weak. I think I feel the devil entering me, said Morty. <sighs> me too, Lord. Oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, Jesus. Oh, yes. The evil one is within me. Get thee behind me. Okay. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. Fill me, Lord. Fill me with your living water. The Lord hears your prayer. Please, Lord. Help me, Lord. Oh, yes. Oh, God. Oh, yes. 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 
The end is nigh. Bring forth your blessing from heaven. Amen. Oh, God. Yes. Oh, God. Yes. Oh, God. Morty came over several times a week to meet with my mother to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, proclaiming the name of God repeatedly with a Pentecostal furor that shook the walls of my bedroom and rattled the windows of God's little acre. To mitigate the tumult of their a nightly communion and shield me from further psychological damage, Morty bought me a Sony Walkman with a set of over-the-ear headphones, and once a week my mother would take me to the music section of the general store to buy batteries and pick up a new cassette. Morty and my mother met almost nightly for years to conduct their religious studies while I distracted myself with Black Sabbath and Alice Cooper. Then each morning I would have breakfast with them as they sat across from one another in silence, averting their eyes in mutual shame. This was the happiest my mother had ever been. Sometimes they would look at one another and leap for the bedroom again as I raised my headphones to my head and listened to Coven. In addition to swearing, chain-smoking, and fornicating, discovering me with Linda Carter led to an even more unnerving thing. My mother finally told me the story of her and my father, how they had never met, and the terrible, tragic accident which ruined her life and brought me into the world. Considering the information she was telling me, along with my mother's superhuman shaming skills, she was very gentle and loving. Considering. But it was completely devastating to my young mind and my view of the world, and every world that has followed it, has been affected by it. Do you regret having me, Mom? I asked her. Yes, she said matter-of-factly, without a moment's pause. But just as quickly she pulled me to her chest and gave me the longest, tightest hug she ever gave me. My mother was a tragic and flawed figure, but she never lied to me. God forgive me, she said. I was too afraid to ask whether she sought forgiveness for feeling this way, or for having me. In the same way that an electron can be a particle and a wave, I have come to imagine that it was both, and she had every right to feel both. I met my father three times before his mysterious death. The first time was about a year after my mother told me about him. After one or two interrogations, she realized it would be easier to find out who he was than to convince me to leave well enough alone. So she contacted the gynecologist, who, remembering my mother quite well, was compelled to help her. The name they had on file was Triple Shot Seaver, and his occupation was listed as Exhibition Shooter. Shooter? Wow, I said. It figures he's an exhibitionist, said my mother, before drawing an awkward pause out of her personal reservoir of shame. Her awkward pauses were potentially combustible, so I waited for it to pass. So you want to meet him? She asked, lighting a cigarette. Yes, I said, trying not to sound too excited. She exhaled a cloud of smoke and sadly followed it with her eyes. I followed it too during the awkward wordless moment and watched it dissipate into the ceiling. Had I disappointed her again? I considered telling her I didn't really want to meet my father. But I couldn't. After a determined afternoon on the phone, my mother contacted the carnival Triple Shot was working in and left her phone number. Triple Shot called back less than a week later, said he'd be happy to come by and visit the next time he was in town, which would be in two or three months. During those months, I watched every western I could. Shane, The Searchers, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Rio Bravo, The Magnificent Seven, whatever was on, imagining that my father was Clint Eastwood, John Wayne, or Gary Cooper. Maybe he'd settle the frontiers of Bar Harbor, 
Get a job rustling cattle in Kittery, run the outlaws out of Orono, and become the local sheriff. Maybe he'd be James Garner. That'd be nice. My mother drove me to the drugstore to meet him, gave me ten dollars, and left it to fate. I went to the counter, ordered a sarsaparilla, and waited for a man resembling Chuck Connors or Jack Palance to come in. And I hoped he would come in soon, because it was a strange man looking at me with what I perceived were pedophile eyes. Matt, he said. Who are you? I asked. It's me, he said, smiling, revealing tiny pug-like teeth. Triple shot. Dad, I said. I reckon, he said. You look well, he added. He wasn't Marshall Dillon. He was more like Barney Fife. He was withered, sunburned, unsteady, and so unlike anything I had imagined, it made me painfully aware that I didn't know him at all. I thought about the long day ahead of us. Plenty of time to get molested, killed, and dumped into a gravesite. Especially if he'd been up all night digging it, which at the time seemed plausible. So, what would you like to do? he asked. I don't know, I said. Well, he said, I have the whole day off. He looked at me, and at the time I couldn't think of anything to say. Do you have any questions? he asked. You have any other kids? I asked. None that I know of, he said. I used to donate a... Probably not. After a quick pause, he said, I recognized you immediately. It's like looking in the mirror. He winked at me and quickly picked up the notes of horror in my face. Well, it's been a while since I've looked in the mirror, kid, he said. I probably should have drunk more water. He put his hand on the pitcher at the table. Would you like a glass? Yes, sir, I said and probably a little too quickly. Triple Shot smiled. Triple Shot, he said. Everybody calls me that. Okay, Triple Shot, I said. So what would you like to do? He asked. Do you like the movies? Yes, I said. Well, let's get a paper and find one. We arrived at the theater early, and while we waited for the box office to open, I asked Triple Shot about himself, and he gave me a sober picture. Long before I was born, when exhibition shooting was an extension of the American myth, he was respected. The one skill he ever had gave him a little bit of fame and a great living. But on the way down, he stumbled into every vice a father could warn his son about. Now he worked as a carny, slept in a Chevy Nomad, traveled from state to state, and donated every bodily fluid he had to get by. He had only donated his seat a handful of times, saying that for the last few years he couldn't give it away. At the movie theater, I took out my $10 bill. Keep it, kid, said Triple Shot. He had sold some plasma the day before and was flush with cash. So he ordered hot dogs and popcorn and watched Blade Runner at a second-run movie theater. He was a strange man but I wanted to know more about him. I wanted to see where I came from, and I was hoping he'd teach me how to shoot. But we never went further than small talk and going to the movies during his visits. However, the last time I saw him, he seemed wistful and looked at me with a restrained affection. That day, I felt a sense of what it was like to have a father. A few months later, Terrence Triple Shot Seaver died while cleaning his gun. At least that's what his obituary said. The decorated red case containing my father's revolver sat at the top of the boxes my wife had sent me. It was what remained of my father, and it was as terrifying to me as my mother's remains were. A few days after my 22nd birthday, Isabel Jillings passed away in her sleep. After a two-year battle with lung cancer, she was cremated and placed in what looked like a Chinese takeout container 
before it was dropped into her cemetery plot. To this day, I can't look at a container of Kung Pao without thinking of Isabel Jillings, mother of one. To this favor we must all come, I say to myself. At this point, the man behind the counter would usually say, What was that? And I would ask for chopsticks. I had been living in that cheap basement apartment for several weeks, breathing the damp, stagnant air, stepping on sugar ants and slugs, swatting flies, teaching myself to play the harmonica and wondering why. I was making progress with Train Kept a Rollin' and No More Doggin', but the dopamine spike from mastering a tune was for me barely a blip. Heather was everywhere in my mind. I couldn't deny her presence any longer. I bit down on the harmonica and started inhaling and exhaling a lazy, dissonant chord. And when I couldn't take it anymore, I took the honer out of my mouth and tapped my forehead rhythmically, over and over. Then I could see the fully formed image of Heather jumping rope between two costumed men. And as she sang, more half-naked men rotated in and out and in and out. Tinker, tailor, soldier, sailor, rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief, doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, tech guy, cable guy, undertaker. The sideshow terror played on and on. A 24-hour porno featuring men in various hats, uniforms and tool belts, ravaging Heather in shifts as I watched on. Invisible, unloved, unwanted, and forgotten. Grave digger, oil rigger, CEO, jock, bricklayer, tennis player, ex-con, cop. It wouldn't always be like this. It was transient. It would pass. I just had to wait it out. I would find the strength and rally myself, and my miserable days would be exchanged for Dick and Tom and Harry and Hank. Bobby and Jimmy and Larry and Frank. I decided to try getting drunk. Since I had a weak constitution, I started with light beer, and I indulged in anything and everything I could to escape. Two men, four men, six men, eight. Good luck trying to master. I searched my mind for a thought compelling enough to push back the village people multiplying in my head. I tried to meditate, to focus on my breath and let Heather float away. I tried to think of things I was grateful for. I tried to think of kittens and lapdogs and Carl Sagan and the meaning of the scary baby at the end of 2001, but the skipping image of Heather kept coming back. 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, While crying on the toilet surrounded by bottles of Dos Equis, I saw my reflection in the mirror and started to laugh. My sad, pathetic eyes, my gaping and guppy-like mouth, my sobbing belly breath shaking me from my shoulders to my pitiful, dangling nutsack. I hid my face in my hands and slid down Maslow's pyramid to the place where cautionary tales are workshopped. In a desperate attempt to change my narrative, I opened my physics textbook in search of inspiration. The page I landed on was Quantum Suicide. Quantum Suicide, also known as Quantum Immortality, is a variation of Schrodinger's cat. If you're unfamiliar with Schrodinger's famous thought experiment, it involves locking a cat in a box with a device that could kill it at any time. As long as the box is closed, you don't know whether the cat is dead or unusually docile. My simplistic understanding of these mental exercises is that they explain how subatomic particles behave when you look at them 
and how they misbehave when you don't. A subatomic particle can simultaneously be a wave, occupy two or more positions, and react to things before they happen. Scientists have labored to explain this duplicitous, ambivalent, and anxious behavior. Their response for the average layperson is that they must concurrently exist in multiple worlds. The average layperson's response for the scientists is, why did it have to be a cat, and how would you like to be in a box? Quantum suicide essentially puts the observer in the box. It is Schrodinger's cat from the cat's point of view. Based on the spin of an electron, a life-terminating device such as a revolver would be triggered, either killing the subject or allowing them to live on. If there was only one universe, the experiment could only be performed a finite number of times before the subject was terminated. But in an infinite multiverse, the unwise gambler could survive every time, and instead of the Song of the Valkyrie or the Harps of Heaven, he or she would simply hear a click, indicating that they could play another round. Though in countless repetitions, the test would end in tragedy. In some world, against all odds, the subject would live on to play in perpetuity. As I read about this experiment, a thought occurred to me. It came in the form of four thrilling words. Words that are only entertained by Russian dramatists and people who are not in their right minds. I have a revolver, I thought. The lid on the box popped open as soon as I unfastened the latch. As if some asphyxiated entity had pushed it out to draw a breath, the tarnished object lay still and lifeless, sunken in the old velvet lining. I like to think that somewhere out there was a wiser version of myself, who closed the box and went back to sleep. I stared at the open case and trembled for a while. The fear had wiped my mind clean, and I was grateful for the respite. I wasn't serious, I thought. I wasn't seeking death. But as long as I flirted with it, there was no room in my mind for Heather and company to follow me. They would have to stay back and wait. But how much could I flirt with death without consummating the relationship? How far, Matt, are you willing to go? My father had died cleaning this revolver, and it was tarnished again. I dug an old t-shirt out of my hamper and paused in front of the open box. I swallowed hard and reached for it. It was no dagger of the mind, no false creation. When I clutched it, I could feel its perilous certainty. It was solid, cold, and heavy, and as I held it, the proportions of the wide world were dwarfed. I opened the cylinder, Click. examined its chambers, and wiped away the residue. The gun was clean, but I continued to wipe it. What would I do then? Would I put the revolver away? How much would be enough? With terror and delight, I picked up a single round, opened the chamber, and slid it into place. Then I spun the cylinder the length of my hand. At that moment, in Schrodinger's terms, I was in the box. A sharp chorus of sober voices screeched within me, causing me to put the gun down. Stop! 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 My heart pounded. Enough! I turned my back to it and walked away toward my cot. As I laid down, I could hear my heart pounding loud like the piston of a locomotive. As I breathed and put the thought of the revolver behind me, the pounding slowed, and the beating of my heart settled to a slow, relaxed cadence, like the skipping of a rope. Bedroom, living room, kitchen, and bath. 
backyard boulevard in the front path. Back seat, front seat, basement and roof. Heather was in my head again, and she brought her entourage. I asked them to leave, but they didn't listen. I begged and pleaded and screamed. I told them if they didn't leave my head, I would. They paused for a moment and looked directly at me. No, that's not what I meant. I looked back at the revolver, and they started to fade. I stood up and walked toward it, and they disappeared. I sat down on the floor closer to the revolver than my cot. I was afraid to move. My mind was a satellite being pulled between two deadly gravity wells. If I was going to make it till morning, I had to slow my orbit and halt my descent. So I dug a pad of paper out of one of my boxes, and I wrote a suicide letter. If I wanted to avoid killing myself, writing a suicide letter seemed like a fairly solid plan. I've never been good at finishing letters. I can't even get a birthday card out on time. Likely, I would get stuck on a cliché, become self-critical, and abandon the project entirely. But that night, the muse ran through me like a bad tuna salad. So I wrote three more letters. I told myself they were theoretical letters, part of a thought experiment of a hypothetical suicide. I numbered these letters from one to four, and I called them the quantum suicide letters. I addressed the first one to whoever finds my body, apologizing for the mess and assuring him or her that it was an accident and signing it mortally yours. The second was addressed to the person who found my body passed out in a bathtub with four strange letters in my hand, telling them not to worry, it's just my strange sense of humor, signing it, please don't call my wife. The third one was to me, telling myself that I was lucky to be alive, and luckier that my wife didn't find out. The fourth letter was addressed to my wife, telling her everything. Absolutely everything. I felt better, but I still had a long night to get through. Maybe in the light of day I would be more sober and calm. I saw the gun laying on the bathroom floor. What a spectacle. I took a breath and picked it up. I was glad the thoughts of Heather had subsided. I had had enough sadness, bitter euphemisms, and dark thoughts for a lifetime. As long as I could steer clear of them, I would be okay. But how, I thought. How long could I hold them back? How could I avoid wondering about Heather, or what she had been doing while I was away, or, worse yet, what she was doing right now? It doesn't matter now, I told myself. It's not about numbers, it's about her and me and... How many could there have been, anyway? Realistically. No, oh, no, not that rabbit hole. That way madness lies. Any thought was better than that. I cleared my mind. Then I could see Heather standing in a spotlight. She was wearing the dress she wore on our first date. And she never looked better. I stood in the doorway and she turned toward me. But it was like looking at a smiling face in a photograph. She didn't seem to see me. The spotlight followed her as she walked up to a podium and stood under a banner that said, Welcome. Then the lights came up on the auditorium, and it was clear that she was holding a large staff meeting. The room was packed with a vast assembly of tradesmen adorned in various hats, uniforms, and costumes. The corners of Heather's mouth curled, and her eyes caressed them as she spoke. I have reviewed your applications for employment, looked over your credentials, and I am pleased to report that I have positions for all of you. I believe in keeping my subordinates happy, giving them frequent raises, and encouraging upward mobility. I hold the same philosophy with my clients, and my investors regularly send me proof that I have significantly inflated their holdings. 
and I assure them that I will leverage their stocks aggressively until they yield. I can be very demanding, and I expect all of you to give me all you've got. While you are with me, you will be wearing a lot of hats, changing positions frequently, and throwing yourself into your work. Lastly, remember that in my company, you will work very hard and play even harder. Heather waved away another presenter. Talk is cheap, she said. What you all need is an object lesson. I shook my head and tried to refocus. I didn't want to see anymore, but I couldn't look away and I had no voice to command them. At this point, a man approached me and handed me a bucket and a mop. Heather selected several volunteers and the main event began. She mounted a jockey, played two holes with a golfer, went to third base with a Yankee, rebounded with a Laker, and made love to a tennis player. Then she had a double entendre with two poets, role-played with an actor, hoisted a captain's pinnace, juggled a clown's balls, made part of a magician disappear, and read a writer's manuscript. The spectators stood up with appreciation, and Heather was carried above the crowd and sunk into a sea of caressing hands that lowered her to the ground where she moved from one partner to another, ridden by a cowboy, plowed by a farmer, seated by a grower, broomed by a janitor, boned by a doctor, hosed by a fireman, jackhammered by a construction worker, busted by a cop, served by a lawyer, tried by a jury of her peers, and penalized by a judge. She howled with ecstatic pleasure and shouted ecclesiastical praises and confessions of rapture, which were taken down by a cleric while she was receiving a pontiff's mass in the rectory. And it was a sermon penned and delivered for my ears. We are all fungible, commutable, exchangeable, and we will all be replaced. I could feel myself shrinking, depreciating, and disappearing. And as I dwindled to an atom, I could see Heather laying on the deck of an aircraft carrier, covered in semen. She lit a cigarette drew an eager draft, and when she exhaled, she opened her eyes and looked through me and beyond me. What about the seedy men with hands in their pockets? What about the rocket men who love to launch their rockets? So many men there are to have and such a lot to see. There's always lots of cherries in my little cherry tree. At the end of this vision, I felt alone and empty, and I was afraid. And I feared nothing in the world more than myself. I lifted the revolver and spun the cylinder again. I closed my eyes and put the muzzle against my temple, pulled the hammer back, and my finger coiled around the trigger. Well, I said, here go the piano lessons. I could feel the cylinder turning, and I waited for the hammer to release. You never hear the one that gets you. But the sound of the hammer striking an empty chamber sounds like a metal door slamming, only sweeter. I was immediately filled with remorse. I exhaled, and my heart was changing time signatures like a prog band, and I had a hard time catching my breath. What had I done? What was I thinking? What would Heather say? But I already knew what Heather would say. I had read her letter. Minutes later, I was standing in the bathtub with a gun in my hand again, and hot tears flowing down my face. I spun the cylinder and pointed the muzzle, and started to laugh again. Meow, I said, and continued an all-consuming laugh that bent me at the waist and concluded with the sudden slam of the hammer landing on the empty chamber. Click. I stood up straight, looked back at my revolver. I was knocking on the door of hell. 
pulled between the narcotic thrill of waiting for the sounds of footsteps approaching and the dreadful expectation of the door opening. I knew that I was mad, but I had worn away a lot of my resistance. I spun the cylinder and pointed the muzzle again. As I pulled the trigger for the third time, I could feel every contradiction present inside me. Intoxication and sobriety, shame and euphoria, fear and boldness, pain and relief from pain. I wanted to stop, and I was compelled to go on. I had the gun pointed to my head, and yet I was desperate to live. I was out of my mind, beyond probability and outside of Newtonian law. In my head and outside my body, changing positions, spinning and whirling maniacally like a particle occupying several states at once, hovering on the edge of this world and the next. I was primed and ill-prepared to be healed or atomized. Click. Spin. Point. Click. Spin. Point. Click. Spin. Point. Click. Spin. Point. Click. My mania and foolhardiness continued three, to increase, one, two, and after what three, seemed like a hundred times, three. I pulled the ejector rod, added another bullet, and slammed the cylinder shut. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. I didn't have room to care. I was rolling dice with death and Hades and winning, but the clicks were not inconsequential. I now suspect that I was creating a dreadful momentum that would spin me far off the path of causality, certainty, and congruency hurling me beyond neighboring possibilities to the furthest frontiers of implausibility. If I wasn't stopped by a sudden accident, my next trip might have been to a reality so bizarre my consciousness couldn't embrace it. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. I wasn't thinking then, as I do now, of the theoretical massacre of Matt Jillings's in nearby universes, as they lay lifeless in bathtubs with popcorn-sized nuggets of brain and skull on the bathroom tiles. I just kept spinning and pulling the trigger, adding one bullet after another, until I had one empty chamber left in the revolver. And with that one empty chamber, I continued to spin and pull and spin and pull, followed by endless iterations of click, 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 click. At this point, I ceased to expect any other outcome, but played over and over and over. Finally, when I slammed the fully loaded cylinder back into the revolver, I was so pulled between fear and manic euphoria I could feel the tectonic plates of my psyche shifting within me. I trembled again with seismic intensity and closed my eyes and lifted the revolver toward my head. And my finger twitched. It's hard to be certain what woke my neighbors causing them to call the police. The sound of the revolver going off was louder than I expected, as were the high-pitched screams that followed. These began when I saw the blood spattered across the walls and realized it was mine, and ended around the time I passed out. I woke up in the hospital to the face of my wife. She smiled for a moment. I saw my letters in her hand and recognized the look of disappointment in her eyes. To my naive mind, I had stumbled into the worst-case scenario. Heather looked at me, flummoxed, amazed, and sad. You shot yourself in the foot, she said. I know, I said. I reached for the bandage on my head and a nurse gently took hold of my hand. Try not to touch it, sweetie, she said. You hit your head pretty hard. That was an understatement, I thought. Then I looked ahead and saw that my right foot was elevated and bandaged. I shot myself in the foot, I said. I know, said Heather. She walked up to me and kissed me on the forehead. You need help, she said. As I looked away from her, a new sadness washed over me. The knowledge that I was at last irredeemable in her eyes. 
In all likelihood, there would never be a day of vindication. Once we would look into one another's eyes and feel understood. But there was no understanding now. We were strangers. She would be my incalculable loss. And I would be her biggest mistake. I remember seeing her in my high school corridor, feeling like I was struck by a bolt of lightning. Seeing her in the library, bathed in unapproachable light, making eye contact in the cafeteria, the private smile that invited my approach, walking with her through the park when I shook visibly and could not say whether I shook from the cold or from being close to her, putting my arm around her in the movie theater, and just when I thought I was being too aggressive, she leaned into me, that kiss in the parking lot, and awkwardly discovering the meaning of life inside of her compact Volkswagen. I remember when every song in the radio was about her, when she told me she loved me, when our casual vows assured one another that everything was forever and nothing was complicated and nothing could ever matter and no one could ever come between us, when smiles were wide and frequent. It was forever and ever. It was beautiful. And it was challenging. It was intense. Resources were limited. Not enough time, not enough money, not enough patience. Not enough understanding, not enough of me. Not enough of her. Then we started taking sides on punctuation marks and sitcom plots. I forgot things and got distracted. Gift-giving became complicated and weighty. I loved her, and I regularly felt foolish and uncreative. But she was wonderful and brilliant, and I missed her terribly while I was away. I wanted to get back to her and wondered if I ever could, and thought about our reunion and how sweet it would be. I dreamed of our new beginning and suffered our end. For a long time. While I was being wheeled to the hospital entrance, I was told that there was someone waiting for me outside. They handed me my cane. And as I stood up, a man in a gray suit approached me. Matt Jillings, he said. Yes. He handed me an envelope. When I opened it, I found divorce papers, with Heather's signatures already on them. I can file them for you, he said. The places for you to sign are all marked. Okay, I said. What else was there to do? I realized when I handed the envelope back to the server that I had no place to go. Where could I go having seen what I had seen? I didn't hope for anything more in the world than just a place to go. I leaned on the cane and stood up and walked to the end of the parking lot. And when I reached the road, I turned away from my apartment and away from my wife and away from God's little acre. I hobbled toward the unfamiliar, forward and away, forward and away. I must have been thinking about the equation somewhere in my mind, because as the sun came down, I saw a crack glowing in the road. Why the hell not, I thought. I dropped my cane and stumbled forward and away.
You've just heard Dining with Cannibals Chapter 2, The Quantum Suicide Letters. Written and performed by Michael J. Grady. Released in its current state on February 12th, 2022. Open source music featured in this episode included Brutal Sex by The Fat, Dim Not the Doy by Crazy Al, and Moon Garden by Hair Doctor. Each of these pieces were downloaded at the Free Music Archive. And many of the sound effects featured in this episode came from soundbible.com. For their encouragement, I want to thank Nat Jacob, John Cry, Paul Rice, Andreas Andriatis, Larry Stein, Ruby Fitch, Andrew Shaw, Charlie Arthur, and if you've made it this far with me, you. Thank you for spending an hour with me. I don't take that lightly. If you'd like to see what happens next, stay tuned for more 11-dimensional slapstick. In Chapter 3, Ice Cream in Hell. Sooner or later, never and always. <laughs>